Welcome to today's episode of the PQI podcast. Today, we welcome Sharita Marthon. Sharita is a clinical oncology specialist at Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, DC. Today, we discuss her role as clinical oncology specialist and the development of Sibley Memorial Hospital's clinical pharmacy program, telehealth, and financial toxicity of oral chemotherapy treatment. Good morning, and thank you so much, Sharita, for joining us. So to start out, would you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little about your background? Hi, Ginger. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast today. Um, My name is Sharita. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist here at Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C., Um, I have a background as a PGY2 in hematology oncology um, from Florida Hospital Orlando in Orlando, Florida. Um, I'm also a board certified oncology pharmacist um, and um, currently working uh, as a specialist here, but have previously been an assistant professor um, at Xavier University of Louisiana practicing in oncology, working in the infusion clinic. So have a little bit of different backgrounds. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So I didn't know that you did your residency in Florida. Are you from Florida or? I actually um, attended Florida A&M University. So I stayed in Florida. I'm originally from Boston, but um, yeah, yeah, I've been all over because as a pharmacist, we are known to travel. So we don't, <laughs> people, people don't ask us where we're from because we're from all over. Oh, <laughs> as far. Everywhere. So I, yeah. <laughs> I spent some time in Tallahassee too. My husband went to Florida State um, and it was after we were married. So I'm oh, nice. a couple of years. I like, I liked Tallahassee actually. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice place. It's the capital, I believe, of Florida. Yes, yes. It's pretty, pretty. And then, so will you tell me more about your pharmacy setup there at Sibley Memorial? Um, I know in talking to you, you've really helped grow the clinical pharmacist program that you're part of. So will you tell us kind of about the program and then that process of growth as well? Yeah. um, Yeah. So I've been here at Sibley um, since January, 2020. So it's been almost two years. Wow. Time flies. Um, And, you know, there was an standing request from the John Hopkins um, providers in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, at the John Hopkins Hospital um, to have a a clinical pharmacist um, or a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Sibley location. So um, the reason is um, knowing that it's the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, which is a very um, local area. A lot of the providers even reside or live in this area in Washington, DC. So um, the location is ideal. Um, A lot of the providers, even from Baltimore, come here on Thursdays to do their services. And so the request, uh, because of the um, amazing clinical pharmacy specialists in Baltimore, was to have the same type of presence of specialists here at Sibley. So um, starting, I you know, started off basically from scratch in a sense, although I did have the Baltimore specialists to guide and assist um, with their experience, but um, just keeping in mind that the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore is an academic institution, and here at Sibley, it's a community hospital, so the setting was a little different, a little different dynamic, um, but the providers were, um, some of the providers were the same. Starting off just a really 
building that rapport with the providers. Um, and not only the providers, there's nurse navigators here. There, we have amazing nurse navigators um, that really assist with the in-betweens of services here at Sibley, um, social work, uh, you know, nutrition support. So um, starting off, what I did was just really build that rapport um, and establishing the relationship with the providers. Um, and unfortunately, COVID hit, you know, yeah. like COVID hit and um, I had to kind of revamp my whole way of what I was going to do. A lot of the um, even shadowing the providers in the beginning to build the rapport had to shifted completely um, because I started kind of in the middle of, of COVID. Um, and so with that, my service um, dynamics change a lot <laughs> where um, it was mostly telemedicine and mostly, um, you know, uh, and, instead of face-to-face -face with patients and things it had to shift to um, providing support through phone and video visits and things of that nature. Um, so with that, you know, shift, um, we developed a service. I currently now um, have a, another specialist here. Her name is Arlene Gao, and she covers um, the GI, GU, and CNS disease states. And I cover basically the breast, thoracic, cutaneous, um, and miscellaneous hematology, oncology, almost everything else. Breast, I cover those um, disease states. Okay, wow. So what does kind of a typical day look like for you? Um, number one, yeah. and how has how has the change gone in having to shift everything to telemedicine? If you talk a little about that too. Yeah. So the, my typical day to day um, uh, is um, I do a lot of chemo educations or oral anti cancer educations. So um, starting off, we have our prior authorization team, um, and that is from the Baltimore side. They assist with getting authorization from insurance, making sure that there's approval. And once that approval is um, authorized through insurance, the prescription is sent to the specialty pharmacy. So my day-to-day -day is making sure uh, medication access patients have the medication in hand on time to start treatment. Um, and then also educating the patients on the drug, going over side effects, how to manage side effects, when to call the clinic for serious side effects, um, also going over adherence um, and making sure that um, patients are able to, to tolerate the medication um, and there's no in delays or interactions. We go over, you know, of course, um, reviewing the labs, uh, renal, liver function, anything that may interact. And um, from there, just also uh, doing follow-up with the patients. So typically I would do a, a one-week follow-up um, after the patient actually starts treatment just to see how they're doing with adherence and tolerability. And then after that, I do um, monthly follow-ups um, through a patient questionnaire through my chart. In the beginning, never had a chance to do the um, in-person. In I did it a couple of times. So I would say, um, I believe March, April-ish um, services really started hitting in May. Um, and that is really when the COVID was really booming. And okay. so I didn't really have a chance to fully implement my services um, pre-COVID. Um, so uh, the dynamic was fully telemedicine in the beginning. I have previously um, had you know, services as a professor um, in clinic going seeing the patients. So comparing that difference, it was a big change. Um, 
for me, I noticed that the patients, though, they were very willing and receptive to the change. They appreciated me being available through video because because a lot of times patients want to see my face, like, who are you? Yes. Um, and then also uh, some patients don't, they just rather just do the phone. Um, they just want to get it over with in a sense, yeah. you know, they just want to learn and then start the medication. And so um, for me, as far as specifically the service, it was just always, it's always been the telemedicine video t- um, phone uh, encounters with the patients. Okay. What, what a great time to start a brand new role. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I know in talking with you through other ENCODA initiatives that we've worked on together, um, one subject that's close to your heart is the cost of oral oncolytic medications and patient financial toxicity. So can you talk a little more about um, your patient population there at Sibley Memorial and the issues they face? And then also what steps you all are taking to try to remove financial barriers for patients? Yeah, so great question. Um, so knowing that Sibley is located in Washington, D.C., which we call it the DMV area, which is D.C., Maryland, Virginia, okay. um, a lot of federal employees, a lot of patients that have um, a, a lot of uh, um, a middle to higher income uh, and finances. However, there's a lot of older patients. A lot of our patients are recently retired or have been retired, um, and they're working off of things such as their, you know, pensions or something like that. So the dynamic at at Sibley, it's very different. Our patient population, um, you know, they're very different than the patient population, um, in the Baltimore, at, at the Baltimore campus. Um, So some financial barriers that I've noticed here is that these patients, although older, although retired, um, they still do not qualify for some reason, uh, for for some odd reason for assistance in some way. Um, And the patients are a a lot of times unable to pay or afford the copay. A lot of these patients are Medicare D patients. So commercial, you know, copay cards and things may not apply. Yeah. And so... Um, some of our patients are kind of in this um, gray area that has never really been addressed um, in our patient population. I believe every cancer patient deserves to be treated regardless of their income. Um, I believe that every patient should be have that access to treatment. Um, and so I, I just see this need um, to address and um, um, to make aware, to make aware that this is a unique population um, and to make aware in our society where I know a lot of times we are advocating for lower income and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's great, but I think also considering, um, you know, our elderly population um, who may not be lower income, but may still be unable to afford if they're, you know, working or something. So um, things that I've, you know, um, my partner and I have done to advocate for our patients is just bringing the awareness to the manufacturers um, you know, we've talked to some of the manufacturers and um, um, addressed, you know, our concerns and or discussed our concerns. And um, there was, they've been very receptive. I think it's just because it hasn't been brought to the attention. Yeah. And it's just a very unique and dynamic. And a lot of the manufacturers are receptive and, and willing. It was, it was very, like, I, we had a lot of great feedback, uh, a great um, response to the manufacturing companies about this situation because they they do see it as a unique one. 
So very appreciative of that. So I think it's great that you all are advocating that you have taken it um, to the manufacturers. Is there anything else you think um, that we could do as an oncology community, like the larger oncology community as a whole, or ways that we could better collaborate to try to address some of the issue? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say, you know, if, if possible, because I know there's so many great areas with things, but there's a lot of donating centers. There's a lot of options for that. There's a lot of charities. Um, we do have a charity at Johns Hopkins Hospital with, um, you know, for um, the medical side. So a lot of the patients who are unable to afford the prescription side, the medical side, they typically are able to pay for without any issues because there's a lot of charities, there's a lot of donations from providers and things um, in, in um, the community in general. Um, however, the prescription side is always kind of left out. Um, so um, that would be great, like a charity foundation for prescription drugs for those patients who are, um, you know, not unable to afford a copay for whatever reason. Um, I think yeah. those may be some potential options. That's great. And then moving um, back from financial to your clinical services, will you talk a little more about the actual clinical services there? And then I know you use a patient reported outcomes tool. So can you tell us what that is used for and how it's benefiting your patients? Yes. Um, so we recently um, implemented a longitudinal follow-up um, with our patients because we believe that, you know, after a week to assess adherence and tolerability, we still need to follow these patients um, for some time just to make sure that they um, are uh, doing well on their treatment. So um, Arlene Gao, my partner and I, we've implemented um, something called an ESSR Pro, which is a patient reported outcome that was derived by the Michigan Oncology Quality Consortium. So um, it was originally for, uh, it was a palliative care tool that was used to assess um, patients, um, but it was um, modified or revised to assist with oral oncolytic um, adherence and tolerability assessments. Okay. And so um, what we do is we send a monthly um, uh, report a monthly patient reported outcome questionnaire um, through our uh, the patient's portal, which is a my chart portal that patients receive. Um, and the patients are able to answer questions based on side effects, um, based on a numbering scale of zero to 10. And um, we also uh, have an inherent section where we ask the patients um, how they're doing on taking the medication and if there's any barriers to prevent them from taking the medication. So um, we have been doing this, I believe it's been for about six months and it's been a, it's been a good outcome. We've actually re reviewed some of the things of following these patients, making sure that we are sending it out in a timely manner, making sure that the patients are responding because a lot of times, we, again, we have elderly patients and they're not as savvy some of them are not as savvy with um, the tool and knowing what to um, answer, where to answer. So um, some of our patients do prefer a phone call in that case, but overall it's been working really well. Um, I was able, uh, for example, um, one report to I sent out 
the other day to a patient, I was able to recognize a side effect and address it and uh, make a recommendation on dose reduction based on that. And the provider accepted that recommendation. So I think it is a very effective tool because I, if I wouldn't have sent out that tool, I probably, you know, a lot of times our patients um, don't tend, they wait to report things until it's really bad or really last minute. So it really helps us to be proactive with um, recognizing and mitigating, you know, side effects and things. Um, yeah. That's awesome. So if um, any of the listeners were interested in kind of viewing that tool, is there a place that they could go to do that or how, how would they kind of see um, so this tool is actually embedded in our EPIC um, system. Um, <laughs> however, the Mission Oncology Quality Consortium it does have a PDF format of this tool. Okay. Um, so if they, uh, you know, if they, they search that, they should be able to find this revised um, assessment tool for adverse events um, tracking. That sounds great. Thank you. So it's so important to make sure that we're getting the actual good outcomes if they're taking these medications. Exactly. Um, and then will you talk a little more about the clinical pharmacist role? So I know you, you've had other roles in your career, um, but this specific one and some of the unique challenges that you face. And then I know you've already talked about kind of having to switch to telemedicine or start, start out basically in telemedicine, but how um, have you handled some of the stress and additional challenges also that have come um, during the pandemic? Great questions. Um, yeah, I mean, my role is a very unique role. There's not a lot of specialists um, or not a lot of pharmacists that do um, the uh, sp specifically in clinic specialty pharmacy oral oncolytic assessment. So there's different um, specialty pharmacy, there's outpatient, there's um, you know clinic. So being in clinic, we're able to look at the labs, we're able to collaborate with the providers. So as a specialist, I, I appreciate that side of um, you know my role um, and navigate and uh, facilitate everything with the providers. But one thing I would say is um, there are some challenges. Um, the first being, yes, it's the pandemic and being 100% telemedicine and um, not being able to sometimes be face-to-face -face with the patients or even face-to-face -face with the providers at times. Um, and, you know, uh, it is shifting into this fully telemedicine. I think we had a, a surge of telemedicine um, once the pandemic hit, hit and so I think that um, one of the challenges could be just lack of, um, you know, personal interaction, you know, interaction with other people face to face. Um, and then also um, potentially it could, it could um, be stressful uh, not having someone to talk to um, uh, or discuss, you know, a lot of the burdens that the patients have, because a lot of the patients, a lot of our chemo educations and things are I would say on average about an hour and um, to have someone else to kind of discuss and, 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 and um, explain, you know, these are things that the, you know, you're dealing with as a pharmacist because of having to help, you know, the patients. Um, I think that sometimes can get, um, it can, it can um, be challenging at mm -hmm. times. 
So um, I, I think it's very important to filter that by what value you have as a pharmacist. So I always, as a professor, I used to always tell my students, um, you know, success is you really waking up every day and enjoying what you do in life, you know? Um, and oh. I really believe that, you know, I, uh, you, to balance enjoying what you do, you have to have an outlet. Um, so for me, I, I, you know, I am a spin instructor. So I, you know, I do spin oh. classes on the side. That's or, awesome. yeah, and I like to jog and I like to um, make my own hair products. You know, those type of things are things that are outside of being pharmacy, a pharmacist. And um, I enjoy my life. You know, I think you, we, we love our careers, um, but sometimes we have to have that balance. And I think that helps me balance the challenges that I have um, with work and my career. Yes, I think that is so important, um, what you speak of and having having the balance in life um, and it not not all completely being focused on career. Um, right. So do you instruct at a gym? I have to know. <laughs> I, I love spin. <laughs> yeah, I do at the YMCA. Um, so definitely uh, such an outlet, such a, yeah, it's amazing to have that outlet if anyone ever needs an outlet, do spin. As far as ENCODA goes, um, I know you have been involved in some of our initiatives and we call this the PQI podcast and we work together on a PQI in action for Tucatnib um, earlier in the year. But what do you think is the value of the positive quality intervention for the team? Oh, wow. Um, I love the PQIs. I think it's a quick, easy go-to for access of questions, like for questions about drugs, dose adjustments or reduction, um, you know, supportive care management. Um, I primarily, I do use it a lot for supportive care management um, to standardize um, my recommendations because you can get re recommendations of supportive care from so many different avenues. So I think it helps to bring everything one and it's a one easy go-to um, for that. I think that's the main thing I use it for. That is great. And then I just have one more fun question for you, unless you have anything you would like to add, um, anything you think it's important to share about what you're doing there, or even tips for other providers, um, any, any last thoughts before our last fun question? Um, no, I just hope that everyone enjoyed this podcast. Um, thank you all for listening. If anyone ever wants to contact me, Ginger has my contact. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Yes, I, I can yes. definitely share the contact if you're good with that. <laughs> um, and then so we're mixing it up for season two for our fun question. So today's is what would you um, say is the proudest moment in your life or career? Wow. Yeah. Kevin came up with these. <laughs> oh my goodness, Kevin. So deep. Um, so I, when I, when I, I automatically thought about me walking across the stage as a pharmacist, because um, I am actually the first doctor of, uh, a first um, person in my family to have a doctorate degree I, in my immediate family. Yeah. So I think that was probably the most, my mom, you know, like seeing her face and how proud she was of me and, you know, 
I think that was probably the best memory. I, I think, I think yeah. that's a great thing to be proud of. So yeah, very exciting. But thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you are doing great things there for your patients. And thank you for also always being um, a participant with ENCODA and helping helping us again further further your mission. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sharita. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to follow along. You can listen on our website at ENCODA.org. That's ncoda.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would also like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible. And we hope you join us next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks everybody.